Welcome to Teach Reach, a podcast with Tongi. If you go on Google and you type sleep with your phone by your bed, in 0.65 seconds, you will get over a billion results. Most of them varying in degrees about how bad it is for you to keep your phone close by while you sleep. With so many articles, expert suggestions, at this point, with how prevalent these little devices are, we can safely say that there is enough evidence to conclude that it is best to keep your phone far from your bedside. It is a hard decision because those devices are beyond versatile. They track everything, they play music, they keep us connected and updated. I have a hard time leaving my phone away and sleep without it beside me. Ever since I moved to British Columbia in 2008, I've been unable to forget my phone in another room. Every now and then, I promise myself that I will buy a regular cheap digital alarm clock, ditch the phone, and dispense with it to no avail. I've only recently been able to activate the do not disturb function. You might have noticed a trend from the previous episodes. I remember a lot of dates. When X or Y happened, who did what, what they were wearing, etc. My wife thinks I have a phenomenal memory. Trust me, I do not. It's just that throughout my upbringing, things have happened at key moments when it was impossible to ignore the date, to ignore what you were doing. As Haitians, we remember dates. When this event happened, when that event happened, who died, and who was in power. And God only knows how big some events that I have witnessed were. It is akin to asking you, if you are over 30 years old, where were you? What were you doing on September 11, 2001? You'd remember for sure. And by the way, it was a Tuesday. One of the days that is marked in my brain forever is Sunday, June 4th, 1989. For the history buffs, that's the day the iconic Tiananmen Square protest photo was taken with a simple man carrying a plastic bag staring right through the barrel of a military tank in China. But we'll stay in Haiti for now. So, Sunday, June 4th, 1989. My younger brother was turning three, and it was the day of my first communion. A pretty big deal for a seven-year-old. Many family members from Montreal, New York, Miami, and even my godmother from Belgium, who I've only seen twice, made the trip down to Port-au-Prince to party with my family. In my family, when it's one of us' birthdays, it's everyone's birthday. You throw in a first communion the same day, then it is a no-brainer. We cannot decline a good party. On Saturday night, the adults stayed up pretty late drinking, joking, discussing the usual politics, the typical state of our country. The house was full of people, like a crazy hotel. There were back and forth trips between those who were preparing the food for the reception the next day, those who were setting up the tables on our front porch, setting the backyard. I remember the loud music and the excitement for my first communion were keeping me awake. At one point, the house went quiet, and slowly everyone went to bed. At around 3 or 4 in the morning, the entire house was awakened by a phone call. We had those 80s beige rotary phones. 
they ring with a high, loud pitch. I overheard some of the commotion in the hallway and the Sagin, Sagpasse, oh, mes amis, what happened? What's going on? Oh my goodness. It was very hard to tell what was really going on. Haitian adults have a way to keep things secret. Ten minutes later, I heard a car honking from far away. But I knew that sound. Everyone honks in the street of Port-au-Prince. You do not really know how to drive if you do not master the horn. And every driver has a cadence in the way they use their horn. Based on the cadence, I knew it was my mom's co-worker. She stopped her car in front of our red gate. I could see her from my bedroom in her gray Toyota Corolla. She had a fearful look in her eyes, as if she had seen the devil himself. She was shocked. And this was a woman who was always very calm. She was the lab department head at Hôpital Français d'Haïti, the only person who could do my blood test without me passing out. She stayed in her car, rolled down her window, and screamed, Mimi! That's my mom's nickname. The hospital is burning! The hospital is burning, Mimi! We have to go now! And she sped away. It took me a while to understand this. I seriously thought that I was in a dream, a pure nightmare. The hospital where my mom worked as an admin, where my younger brother was born, where I go visit sometimes after school, was burning. My mom and my dad left right away. I wondered if we would still have the party later, and more importantly, if we would be safe. You see, in 13 years, from 1986 to 1999, until I left Haiti, we had about 10 to 12 changes of government, an embargo, and countless coups. It was very common to go to bed on a Saturday with a government and to wake up Sunday under a new regime and to know that school would be canceled on Monday. What was remarkable is that after every change of government, after every failed attempt to overthrow the person in power, on national television, you'd see a plane land on our airport sent by the quote-unquote international community to bring the plotters or the person overthrown away in exile. As a kid, I had so many questions. Who was the international community? Where were they located? How can they decide on what would happen on our land? Why do we need to be policed? Why can't we take care of our own? Are we incapable of being responsible? Those were tough questions for my parents to answer. Mixed with social political unrest is our geographical location, which makes Haiti prone to continuous exposures to hurricanes. For all the islands in the Caribbean Sea and places bordering the Gulf of Mexico, the threat of hurricanes is real. There is an actual hurricane season, the same as countries in the north have a harsh winter season. So my teenage years were spent living in a lot of fear, panic, anxiety, and uncertainty. Especially after losing my cousin Vanessa in a flood, you needed to have a functioning phone because you never knew when shit would hit the fan, when you'd have to stay home, when the streets were unsafe, when there was an attempted coup or assassination, when your loved one got kidnapped, or when your workplace would be on fire. The wake-up call could arrive at any moment. I dreaded the phone call then. Years later, 
thousands of kilometers away, I still dread it. In the song The Poverty of Philosophy, the artist's immortal technique describes amazingly the condition of the immigrant and marginalized black and brown folks in North America. He says, You see, most of Latinos are here because of the great inflation that was caused by American companies in Latin America. Aside from that, many are seeking a life away from the puppet, democracies that were funded by the U.S. Places like El Salvador, Guatemala, Peru, Colombia, Nicaragua, Ecuador, and República Dominicana. And not just Spanish-speaking countries either, but Haiti and Jamaica as well. There is a rage that many who come from far away carry. It is expressed in various fashions. In my case, it propels me, but it often consumes me. I feel like I have left people behind. I feel victim of my own privilege. I am at a point where I have lived longer abroad than on my own land. I have built a life in North America, here. But I am still Haitian, to the core. So whenever Haiti shakes, my entire being shakes. Whenever a river gets out of its bed and floods a town, the dams of my heart burst. Notwithstanding the fact that every now and then, some comments will remind me that where I am now is not home and cannot be my home. So I live under pressure, my presence neither here nor there. On Saturday, August 14th, 2021, I was awakened by a phone call. The call display showed my cousin's name. Why was she calling me? Maybe to talk about a cool thing that her kid did. Maybe to share a joke. Maybe to catch up. But it was 5.54 a.m. Pacific time. It was way too early to catch up. And then the sheer confusion set in. In a millisecond, all the possible scenarios that I've lived ran through my mind. The same turbulence as 1989 could be read on my face and felt through my body. I mean, we are about one month removed since the president of Haiti was killed in his home, so really anything can happen. All the while, I have to figure out if it's something catastrophic, how to reassure her. Even though there is nothing one can say that could match the gravity of the moment, you have to be a few steps ahead, quickly swallow your confusion, and be available to provide care. This is how we end up with build-up, pent-up trauma, because you do not have time to process, eternally in survival mode. When I answered, there was no time for pleasantries. There was an earthquake in Haiti, she said. We are okay. I don't have time. I can't stay, but we are okay. And she hung up. My whole body felt flat. Again. I was transported back to 11 years ago. After the 2010 earthquake, I had prayed never to feel that again. Never to feel the nothing, the fear, the anger, the inadequacy, the worry, the complete shutdown of my being. Yet, here I was again, 5,000 kilometers away, with another earthquake. Here I was again, going through the blueprint on how to manage this. Group chats, phone calls, 
video calls, local Haitian radios playing in the background, international news stations on TV. And my mind is racing. Who to call first? What do you mean by another earthquake? Where to find the information? Can we reach everyone? Where was the epicenter? When was the last time you had so-and-so's news? Why can't the bloody phone connect? Where was the epicenter again? Oh gosh, there is this auntie who lives 50 kilometers from the epicenter. Has anyone reached her? And as we are deep in social media age, the images are circulating fast. Are those images from 2010 or 2021? Suddenly, I am in a no man's land, split between two worlds, two different decades, but living the same despair, the same emptiness. The earthquake struck on August 14, 2021, at 8.29 a.m. local time, 150 kilometers west of the capital Port-au-Prince, near petit Denis. The whole southwest, called the Big South, is affected. Many buildings were damaged or destroyed, with deaths estimated at about 2,000 people. And since when it rains, it pours, literally, while the earthquake rescue effort started on Saturday morning, it became a clear race against time as Tropical Storm Grace was making its way to the island. Images that I have seen and reports showed people confronted with a dilemma, sleep in their structurally damaged home, risking aftershocks, or sleep outside during a tropical storm under makeshift tents. Now you can see how it is impossible to forget August 14th, 2021. Over the last few days, we have been overrun by images of trauma, suffering, sadness, displacement, and abandonment. I know many who need a moment to breathe, to process, and that's okay. And I cannot deny how lucky we are here to have the ability to rest, to disconnect, and to process. The last few days have been heavy, and I recognize that I am far and the privilege that comes with it. Being Haitian is having your heart broken over and over again and hoping for a better day. Being Haitian is spent in what seems like an eternal ambivalence, a push and pull swaying between extreme levels of joy and profound sadness, partying despite the crazy circumstances and staying ready to see everything crumble before you. Whenever we receive the phone call, I can tell you that every one of us, our stomach turns upside down, and we try to gather every inch of strength to be there for our loved ones, and the courage to deal with the comments, the looks, the your people are cursed speech from the pseudo-sociologist. I remember in Montreal, after anything that would negatively involved a Haitian in the community, I'd have to deal with it for weeks at work. As if one Haitian is the ambassador of all the Haitians. There is something to be said about the images used to show black and brown folks in deep desperation. I feel that only dehumanizes us more and more. That's why I hesitate a lot before opening up and sharing this. I am usually an open book. 
I welcome people in my heart with no worries about the mess it contains. But when I've shared my stories in the past, they were often weaponized against my people and people who look like me, using my stories as a way to validate their stereotypes of Haiti's deficiency. I do not want to do an episode to solely answer the critics. It would give their cynicism too much oxygen. It took a lot of self-work to not care so much about what other people have to say. People who, no matter what, would always see my kind as less than human. Time and time again, when an event such as this happens, we know, we sense the hyenas coming onto our rubbles, on our debris, and our misery. Although I know there are some people who come with genuine intentions to try to help and lend a hand, and I send them all my gratitude. Our experience with certain foreign governments, NGOs, religious groups, ill-intentioned private citizens are of having them trying to further subjugate us, trying to kick us while we are down. And it makes you feel small because you know they come to steal, to increase their wealth, to rape, to keep us under their boots. And after a while, you understand, the more we are in a rut, the better it is for them. What non-Haitians fail to understand is that there are so many great things that we know we bring to this world. Our island is mighty and our people are strong. It is unfortunate that in everything that you will read or have read about Haiti, there will be the tag poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and not first independent black nation in the Western Hemisphere, the only nation whose independence was gained as part of a successful slave rebellion, all because there is a narrative to maintain. I hope to tackle this in future episodes. One shall not equate the government of a country and its people without fully asking how the type of governance came to be. An entire population cannot be responsible for natural disasters. Things like that happen. And before your devil's advocate kicks in, remember those words from the group The Soul Stirrers in their song, Come, Let Us Go Back to God. They say, The earth is in a blaze. The world is in a maze. The way of life today is strange and odd. What happened across the sea may come to you and me. So I beg you, if you are wondering how you can help, if you wish to donate to the rescue efforts, the relief help happening right now in Haiti, please donate to Haitian-run organizations. There are a lot of Haitians who care for our island. There are many Haitians who are very competent, who know who we are, who know what we've been through. When you know who you are, where you've been, you cannot be destroyed. You stand firm and you believe in a better day. Here's a list of organizations that are on the ground to provide help. I will also have that list available on the show notes and the show's Instagram page at teachreach underscore podcast. All these organizations can be found on Instagram. MediShare for Haiti, Hero Rescue, Focal Haiti, the CHF Foundation, Soacid, Haiti Community Trust, Foncose, Hope for Haiti, Zami La Santé, and Mandodo Foundation. Again, this list is not exhaustive. 
make sure you do your research before you donate. Teach Reach is made by Dr. Lemstein Productions, mixing and editing by Ian Lamb. The intro and outro music is by Takoto. If you'd like to listen to the show on the regular, become a subscriber and leave us a review on Apple, Google, or Spotify. You can find more information about our podcast at teachreach.podbean.com. Until next time, Kembila Palagi. Hang in there. Don't give up.